the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, from Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. Always wanted to say that. But now, iron domes and missile threats, losing your head to a sweet-talking laser. Plus, the latest entry in our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. This time we have an interview with Alan Isom, author of a new nonfiction piece that is currently up on the Bain.com webpage. The article is Using Missile Defense Against Terrorist Attacks, Israel's Iron Dome and the Future of Rocket Shields. Alan is a lieutenant colonel with the South Carolina National Guard who is um, quite a bigwig in the air defense uh, system. He is an air defense artillery officer who has served in our national capital, intimately involved with the air defenses there. Alan is also a structural engineer and a big David Weber fan and an all-around cool dude. We'll talk to him about Israel's rocket defense system and discuss what it means to the future of earthly military strategy, where that's going, hint lasers. Oh yeah, and we discuss the problem of diverting asteroid strikes as well. And we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. It's read by Bronson Pinchot. Here's the news. Well, let's talk about a couple of eARCs that are out now at BainEbooks.com. Now, an eARC is the maximum parabolic distance a flying squirrel can travel while leaping from oak to maple tree, taking into account the squirrel's weight, aerodynamic surface, and whether or not it has cute little ear flaps or none at all. No, an eARC is another thing entirely. At BainEbooks.com, you can get an author's work months early, albeit with all the typos and other infelicities intact, by purchasing the eARC at BainEbooks.com, and that's the only place these are available. Now out is the Son of the Black Sword eARC, a new epic fantasy by Larry Correa. That's going to be out in November, but you can get it now. This is the very cool story of Ashok, who starts out as an enforcer for a kind of oppressive um, medieval, I guess, government, but must turn against all he knows when he's faced with a terrible revelation. And uh, as you know with the Larry Correa book, there's a lot of badass fighting with some uh, droll humor in there as well. Also out is the e-arc for The Sword of the South by David Weber. This is one where Basil returns, and we get a compelling new character who has no memory of who he was or where he came from, but whoever he is, he's obviously had a lot of killer military training, and he can hold his own with Basil. The Son of the Black Sword e-arc by Larry Correa and The Sword of the South e-arc by David Weber are now available for e-book readers everywhere at BainEbooks.com. I want to welcome Alan Isom to the podcast. Hello, Alan. Hi, Tony. Thanks for inviting me to participate today. Sure. Um, Lieutenant Colonel Alan Isom is a citizen soldier with one career as a structural engineer with Floor Corporation. Is that how you say that, Alan? Yes, Floor. Floor, an international engineering procurement and construction company, and a second as an air defense artillery officer with the 263rd Army Air and Missile Defense Command, South Carolina Army National Guard. As a structural engineer, he's responsible for designing structures to resist gravity, wind, and seismic loads, and has had the opportunity to work on projects both at home and abroad. As an ADA officer, I guess that's air defense artillery officer, he is responsible for planning and conducting air defense operations to protect assigned assets and has served multiple tours of duty with the National Capital Regional Integrated Air Defense System mission designed to prevent another 9-11-style attack from striking our nation's capital. Alan is the author of a fascinating nonfiction article now available at Bain.com website. It's called Using Missile Defense Against Terrorist Attacks, Israel's Iron Dome, and the Future of Rocket Shields. 
So that's a mouthful, but it's a very cool, uh, very cool piece. So Alan, tell us, Iron Dome, what is it and why should it matter to someone who isn't in the line of, say, Palestinian rocket fire? Well, for somebody who's not that line of fire, they probably have never heard of it and don't have a whole lot of interest in it. Um, the Israelis and uh, folks in that area, unfortunately, have to live with that kind of thing every day, uh, with the exception of our folks who uh, are in uniform or military contractors and, and whatnot, uh, who've actually been over there, really don't have any idea what it's like. Um, you know, we can try to imagine it, but that's no substitute for that personal experience. But, uh, you know, just look at your news and you can see how hot spots seem to flare up everywhere, even in places that seem to have been fairly stable for a while. Uh, you know, you've got uh, things going on in Georgia, that being the uh, country, not the state. And, um, you know, with the uh, Russians going on, and it, things just seem to spread around the world. Um, seems like about 50 60% of the whole continent of Africa seems to go up in uh, fire and flames every once in a while. And let's make it, face it, uh, rockets and artillery and mortar, which is the, the threat set that Iron Dome is designed to counter, that is a huge part of what goes around. Um, rockets have gotten relatively inexpensive and accessible, right, to, um, to a wide variety of bad guys, bad actors. Most definitely. I mean, if you can find some of the um, material that's on things that uh, uh, Hamas and Hezbollah have used, you'll find that a lot of them are homemade. Uh, they don't do a whole lot of damage, but it doesn't take a whole lot to kill somebody. Um, so, you know, those type things, you know, as as they proliferate, as we have more and more folks that uh, become radicalized with the online uh, sales pitch that. Uh, for some reason, and I don't understand it, but it does seem to be quite successful with uh, certain elements. Um, you know, homegrown terrorism will spread, and if it's that easy to make some of that stuff in your garage, I'm afraid we'll start seeing some of it uh, bounce around. And the problem with air defense is that, generally speaking, you have uh, an area or an asset or something that you're uh, assigned to protect. You just don't have enough of it to go everywhere. So. If somebody decides to build something in his garage and set it off, well, if it's not near a protected asset, it's just going to go down wherever it goes down, uh, which is something something of a chilling thought. Yeah. So how does how does Israel do it? Um, what's what's give, can you give us an overview of the system? Uh, generally speaking, uh, Iron Dome as an individual, um, I guess, firing unit. Uh, consists of uh, a radar and a battle management center and three or four launchers that can be spread out. And each launcher uh, has a battery of uh, 20 missiles, Tamir missiles. And so they can take several of these firing units and create a much larger protected zone. Uh, and they are designed to go after the shorter-range rockets, uh, the mortars and the artillery. What uh, rockets, artillery, and mortars sometimes referred to in military circles as RAM. Um, but uh, for that particular threat set, uh, once an incoming round is detected, uh, usually by radar, uh, then they track it with that radar, determine where it's going to go, and if it's going to land inside a protected zone or, or hit a defended asset, they will launch a Tamir missile to intercept, and then it will be radar-guided up to uh, a point. And once it is uh -huh. close enough, it will detonate. The, the missile will detonate, throwing out kind of a shotgun-type blast uh, with uh, small ball bearings or whatever it's packed with. Uh, so the Tamir missile can change directions as it's flying if, if the radar image uh, changes. Yes, yes. Um, a rocket... Basically, a fire-and-forget unguided missile or unguided uh, weapon. You, you fire it in the right direction, and it kind of goes on its arc as it, its fuel burns up, and then it just it coasts onto the ground. It's unguided. A missile is a guided element, and so when it's fired, it uh, can be changed uh, for its direction, it, you know, whatever the guidance uh, package is that's on it. And we've got different types of missiles uh, around the, the world and different 
for different uses. You've got anti-tank missiles. You've got anti-aircraft missiles. Iron Dome is uh, anti-rockets, artillery, and mortar missiles. Um, it can double up as an anti-aircraft missile and shoot down an airplane, but its its primary threat set is uh, the, the rockets and type things that uh, come in short uh, duration, uh, very tight timeline to engage. Uh, so what are so the the integrated system is the radar, um, the missiles, and the transport, or is there something else? The, the battle management center. What is that? So. Yes, they are integrated, but when you start talking about an, an integrated air defense system, that's usually a larger team. So while Iron Dome as a set of launchers, a battle management center, and radar is its own little squad, if you will, uh, out there, to make a full-fledged team, they will tie in the battle management center and the radars of other systems like uh, Arrow 2, Arrow 3, Patriot, uh, things like that, where they'll exchange data so that uh, somebody that might be firing a rocket from one side of a hill that Iron Dome can't see until it gets over the top of the hill, somebody else might be able to see it as soon as it's launched and give them an extra 30 seconds, minute, maybe a little more to uh, complete their task of tracking and engagement. Sometimes what? two or three seconds is all the difference in the world between that uh, rocket finding its target or not. Yeah. What is the what is the real time like action here from the when the when the uh, the, the rocket is fired into into Israel? Well, that's something that the Israelis hold pretty close to the uh, vest. Um, the stuff that I have been reading and, and uh, from what I've been able to learn, uh, three to five minutes. Um, anything shorter than two or three minutes, and it's there's just no time to react. Uh, and that would be your really short-range uh, mortars, which there's not a whole lot you can do about those. But then again, they are so short-ranged that they're not going to go very far. Uh, but once you've got stuff that can go you know, 20 or 30 miles, you've got enough time for Iron Dome to be able to do its business. How fa Do you have any idea how fast these uh, the homemade rockets go? Is it like faster than... Most of it is going to be subsonic. Yeah. So it, the missiles designed—the missiles designed to kill them—are a lot faster than they are, then, and they cost a lot more. Oh yes. <laughs> um, yeah, Tamir missiles are running. At, the range of costs that I saw ranged from around thirty thousand dollars up to a little over a hundred fifty thousand. Uh, is what I had put in my article as sort of a a round estimate. Uh, through the middle of the range, uh, but far, far more than the rockets that they are countering. Yeah, but our, obviously, saving a life is worth fifty thousand dollars, a hundred thousand. But um, can Israel sustain the cost of this system? Is it is it something that is just unique to this particular situation, or is it something that um, that is sustainable and might even be strategically used somewhere else, for instance? I think that anybody that is having to deal with a sustained insurrection could benefit from it. Uh, Israel's position is a little bit unique, um, being on two sides, uh, being struck with uh, this type of thing, but without it being quite as internal, it's still on their border, uh, unlike a lot of the, uh, the stuff uh, running around Afghanistan where somebody pops up in the middle of things. Uh, but still, uh, a local defense is still feasible there. Um, I don't know if you remember in the article I uh, mentioned something called CRAM, which is counter rockets, artillery, and mortar, which is a gun-type system that is uh, designed against the same threat set. In a built-up area like Israel, something that's spewing out bullets, which is what CRAM does, uh, is uh, it's got the potential to you know, cause a little collateral damage, uh, where Iron Dome is a bit more clean on that. Yeah, I guess bullets have to come down somewhere. Yes, and uh, you know if it, if they don't go straight up and then fall at the speed of gravity, they've still got a lot of velocity behind them, especially ones that are that size. But uh, for now, Israel is is sort of they're stuck. They have to sustain it. Um, but they do pick their defended areas for 
the higher volume uh, living areas. Uh, you know, if they've got a lot of people, they're putting assets in place to defend it. If it's uh, you know more open farmland or something like that, well, they might lose a few uh, plants to uh, a stray rocket, but they're not going to worry about that. They're having to pick and choose what they can defend because, as you noted, assets are limited. Um, but as far as the cost goes, they have been getting uh, some help with covering that uh, from outside sources, uh, United States being one of them. Um, but you know, one of the things you've got to remember is that $50,000 isn't just saving a life or even some of the property uh, inside those defended areas. Uh, which are huge. Those you can't, as you noted, put a, a value on the life saved. Um, but Israel has traditionally suffered at the hands of Western uh, media. Uh, you know, anything they do, uh, the Palestinians or uh, you know, Hamas and Hezbollah supporters on whichever side, they they scream and cry about being the victims, and uh, Western press eats it up and paints the Israelis as being heavy-handed uh, thugs. Um, are they overreacting sometimes? Probably. But, you know, when you're being constantly attacked, how do you put a, a point on that? So the fact that they've got the ability to knock some of this stuff out of the way, give themselves breathing room to think, and uh, even to sit sheltered, gives them a, a lot of leeway also on the political side as far as, um, you know, getting a, effectively international approval rather than condemnation. Yeah, so I guess the best defense is a strong defense in that <laughs> that situation. It does Just seem that to, way for the propaganda um, value. Yeah, and part of the problem is also that it's very hard to to counter um, the shooter himself. Um, mo you know, we all know about from press about uh, suicide bombers and whatnot, but the vast majority of these folks uh, just prefer to. Uh, Try to fire a rocket to kill somebody and run away. You know, murder, run away to murder again another day. Um, so, you know, if they had a large group of them, they might be able to detect them before they fire. Or if they've got uh, a lot of uh, firing coming from a local area, they could drop an artillery round or or hit them with uh, an aircraft, uh, you know, strafing rod or bomb or something like that. But for onesies and twosies here and there, it's a lot harder. To, uh, to get the shooter and remove him from action. So it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, well, let me ask you this. All right. So this may show my age. Uh, this, the, the last I remember all the talk about uh, defense, uh, missile defense and such is an American peanut gallery of experts on the left telling us there's no way missile intercepts can work because they can only be partially successful. Um, is Iron Dome a test case of missile and rocket defense on a larger scale? Does it scale up? Well, going back to the first part with your, your peanut gallery, I think that um, there were two reasons for them to say that. And the first was that technologically we were at a point when it first started that although the math was there, we didn't have the technical capability to to put it into action uh, very easily. Um and the other, of course, was that you know, people who didn't want to see it happen, uh, you know, there's the political side of things. Um, but you know, talk to anybody that uses a computer, and they will tell you how fast technology is changing. And you know, we have seen it with a lot of things as miniaturization has come down. Um, anybody when the cell phones first started, the huge brick, and now we've got things that we have to actually scale them up bigger than what we need just so they are convenient for the human hand. Technologically, we can do a lot today that we couldn't do 20 years ago when a lot of this started. Um, but can it scale up from dealing with rockets and artillery and mortars to dealing with uh, ballistic missiles, be they short-ranged or intercontinental? That's a big question. I think the short answer is yes. Um, the, the math fairly well stays the same, but your timelines and some of your constraints change. Um, speed of the incoming round being a huge piece of it. Um, you've got whatever your counter missile is, be it an Iron Dome Tamir missile or Arrow or, or whatever, Patriot, um, 
it's got only so much fuel, so it's got only so much range. And if you're firing at something like an incoming ballistic missile, it has been fired from, generally speaking, a much further distance away than you have the legs to reach with your counter missile. So you're going to be hitting it, um, at best case, mid-course probably. Um, terminal phase, it's coming back down. It has got a lot of speed. So unless you've got layered defenses, you're probably going to only get one shot at it. So you've got to have accuracy for it. Um, you know, your, your timelines are just so tight. Uh, you know, it could range from a minute or so uh, window for kill, or it could range down to only a handful of seconds. I don't know if that answers your question yeah. exactly. Um, well, so um, do we have anything remotely like Iron Dome uh, in the U.S. that you can talk about? Uh, well, I mentioned CRAM a few minutes ago, and it's it's designed to uh, counter the same threat set, the short-range stuff that Iron Dome is. And it's we've only used it overseas, uh, to the best of my knowledge, uh, like the Afghanistan uh, conflict. Um, and then there's a version, that's the land-based version of the phalanx system that the U.S. Navy uses, uh, which, of course, they're going to be firing out over open water. Again, little chance of collateral damage in that type of a case. And it's using a gun system, which is going to be you know heavy on the, uh, the ammunition requirements. But we do have it. Um, and on the far end of the spectrum, uh, we've got what's called uh, ground-based mid-course defense with GMD, which is another air defense system designed against the, uh, the longer-ranged and intercontinental ballistic missiles. Uh, you know, you can Google CRAM or you can Google BMD, and you can read a little bit about uh, either one of them. Um, the GMD stuff is pretty doggone expensive, as you can imagine, because it's going after things that are very long-range. So it's having to get out a fair ways itself. Um, and it's a mid-course defense, so it's trying to hit stuff uh, basically as it's coming back in from space. Uh, those things at that range, uh, the ballistic missiles will actually exit the atmosphere and then come back. And so the intent is to try to hit it, destroy it before it comes back into the atmosphere, and then everything burns up on reentry. Who can threaten us at the moment with with uh, stuff like that? Uh, who's got the capability or yeah. the desire? I guess. Comes well, who, the who's got the capability? I mean, not, well, I, I suppose Europe is not going to Western Europe is not going to fire on us yet. So. No, uh, I think that some of them have got you know the technical capability. I mean, the Brits are basically the same place we are uh, technologically, but our traditional uh, concerns, uh, you know. Of course, before the fall of the Iron Curtain, Soviet Union uh, had a lot of things uh, that could threaten us, uh, ICBM-wise. Um, and I'm sure that most of those still exist if they haven't let them deteriorate yet. Uh, China has got the ability. Uh, North Korea is striving very hard to get it. Um, they just recently had a uh, submarine-launched ballistic missile test. I think it was... Uh, the consensus at this point is that it was a, an ejection system test, meaning uh, how to get the missile out of the boat uh, without sinking the boat. Um, if they could ever get a little bit longer legs, Iran would love to be able to, to reach us, but right now they're limited to, to Western Europe. I uh, don't think they have anything that can quite get over here. Yeah. So we have... We have these long, long-range threats from from larger bad actors, but we also have these piddly punk uh, terrorists who can just get their hold on a get a hold on a missile or a rocket. Um, what about Washington D.C.? You were um, you served in the National Capital Regional Integrated Air Defense System uh, there. Uh, what did you do, by the way? It, what can you tell us about what you did there? Well, it's. Uh the National Capital Region, excuse me, Integrated Air Defense System. I mean, it, like we were describing earlier, it's integrated, so it's got uh, more than one uh, piece to the pie. Uh, you know, we've got uh, the air defense side, or the aerial side, I guess, uh, which the Air Force handles and always has. Uh, the newer piece that's been added uh, since 9-11 is the ground-based piece, which I've, I've been involved with. And uh, without straying into the classified arena, 
uh, I can pretty much just say that uh, it's a combined system dealing with uh, computer systems, um, weapon systems, radar systems, communication systems. Uh, as truly integrated team out there. Uh, do so we that, have? Can you tell? Do we have any anti-missile missiles waiting to uh, protecting Washington? That is something that uh, I really can't get into. Um, that does fall into the classified side. But uh, I will say that uh, you know what the U.S. has in inventory uh, for missiles uh, is fairly limited, um, and you know, is Washington, D.C. always going to be the best target? Uh, there's a big question. Uh, yes, it's our center of government, but at the same time, most of those things take a fair bit of time to get here, so early warning would kick in. So uh, what about a terrorist sitting out in, uh, you know, in in Maryland shooting in or right uh and you know anything that they could put together that close so we're hopeful that the uh, FBI and other intel agencies would uh, know about it before they could pull a trigger but you know when you're talking about um trying to knock down missiles coming at Washington DC you know you're imagining or I'm imagining anyway some sort of ballistic missile uh, fired from some location. Yeah, well, what about a rocket launcher from somebody's shoulder? Um, just, uh, rocket launcher is definitely a consideration. and uh, But, you know, that kind of thing is, is tough. Um, you know, what you can emplace around a city like D.C. is, you know, there's a lot of political considerations beyond just a straight military thought process. So, yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Lincoln was always concerned about the Confederates getting in there and wreaking havoc during the... Uh, Oh, yes, and you can still see all of the, uh, well, not all, but many of the uh, small fortifications and trenches that they built. Uh, it's rather fascinating, actually, if you have a chance to get there and walk around them. Uh, they did a lot of digging. <laughs> that was the beginning of uh, trench warfare, I guess. Well, I imagine a world where Iron Dome has proliferated to a lot of countries. Um, what do you think will be the military implications of that? What kind of world are we going to see in the future? Um, next 20 to 50 years, perhaps, um, militarily. What um, Are we seeing a huge swing from offense to defense? Um, are we going to have to change our military strategy as a result, the U.S.? Yeah, well, I mean, the implications are potentially very huge. Uh, rockets, artillery mortars you know, used in little penny packets, would be completely obsolete uh, in that type of a situation where you have a robust uh, defense against it. Now, if you've got it more like you've got it in Israel right now, anything in penny packets going against a defended asset is obsolete, but otherwise it's pretty just useless dropping into open fields. Um, but the, I guess, the overall efficacy of that air defense depends in large part on the overall capabilities of both sides um, for the type of insurrectionist attack that Israel is defending against, it's a huge swing in the favor of the defender. Um, you know, you just the, the bad guys lob rockets and mortars and then take off and run. Uh, they really don't have to, the capability to take ground and keep it. Uh, and they really don't have any assets to go up and, and fight an air war. It's fire something from the ground and run away and hope it did something useful from the, their perspective. Um, when you get into some of... Uh, Israel's other neighbors, uh, you know, Syria and uh, Lebanon and, and whatnot, um, it still gives the defender an asset, uh, excuse me, an edge with those assets because uh, it gives them a little bit more freedom of movement. Um, most of the folks in that side of the world tend towards uh, heavy artillery and rockets. You know, they, they, they like to throw stuff up that goes boom when it hits. Um, watch the news nowadays. You've got ISIL. Uh, launching attacks against Ramadi and everybody else that they can reach, there is a lot of heavy gun use. Uh, systems like Iron Dome would knock them back on their heels. They, it would do them no real good. Um, what ISIL, what a, a group like ISIL has, though, is an ability to move forward with infantry. Um, now, somebody that's got enough infantry or armor, or cavalry, or whatever, 
to push in on a ground attack could go in and, and try to destroy the radar or the, the uh, Iron Dome launchers themselves to to get rid of them. But at that point, they're already in amongst uh, the defenders. Uh, if you understand what I'm saying, yeah, you sure. Have the, the people to. Mount if you could get there to destroy it, you would. Um... <laughs> You wouldn't have to fear it that much anyway because you're already you've already won. Right. But at the same time, if they're gonna have that much on the ground available, the defender has time to mass his other assets as well. It it becomes mm. a fairly dicey and very costly affair. I mean it that's that's really going back to the really yeah. old school tactics of just throwing bodies. So it's taking out the artillery barrage. Pre- the preparatory artillery barrage as a as a, um, a, a tactic. Pretty much goes away. Yeah. I mean, you, you watch some of the old, uh, old style films where they're dealing with World War One or World War Two. Uh, see these guys advancing behind the artillery. They'd have a, a rolling artillery barrage and it would start at one point and move its way towards the enemy lines and roll over the top of them. Yeah. And as it ended, at the closer ranges, the, the infantry would move forward under its cover because the guys in the trenches would have to be ducking. You know, it's the same concept has been used still uh, since then, but that type of an attack where you can move your people forward uh, fairly safely while the other guy's ducking, that's gone. Yeah. Well, one assumes that the um, people like ISIS... Um, are using those kind of old-fashioned, in a raggedy fashion, perhaps not a not a, a truly organized fashion. Are using those kind of old-fashioned uh, infantry tactics against uh, against who they're fighting against. Um, yes, I, would, I was really thinking of applying that more to an organized uh, military, be it somebody you know, around that area. Um, a lot of those groups. And from what I've seen of ISIL, they're a little better, but not much than the uh, the Taliban insurgency and, and whatnot uh, in Afghanistan, where they they fight more bandit-style tactics than they do army-style tactics, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, and in fight, is the fact that this is so dependent? This is this is such a product of Western technology. Um, is it going? To, is that going to limit um, its proliferation? Iron Dome type technology, missile defenses like this, or is it something that uh, you know that Iran could develop? Or well, Iran is—they could certainly develop it. Um, a lot of those countries in the Middle East would never buy it, largely because it was developed by the Israelis, and they're, they're just—they're unwilling to buy from from them. Other countries of the world, they couldn't care about the uh, the whole religious thing going on between the, uh, the uh, Jews and the Arabs. But um, certainly the Israelis have been first on it, and they have proven that not only is the math possible, but the technology is possible. Uh, and knowing that you can do a thing is half a battle. So certainly somebody like Iran, given a little time, could develop something. Well, are they going to? I mean, is is it? Uh, how much time would it take? The Israelis did it in three years. Uh-huh. Uh, I would imagine the Iranians, without having some of the backing of the U.S., would probably take a little longer. Um, but I don't know that they would really worry about it until they got to the point of receiving fire themselves. Yeah. Well, there's something about getting shot at that makes you <laughs> rethink your your priorities, I guess. Um, so in the article, you you don't just deal with the present, but also talk about the future. Uh, what will Iron Dome become? Iron Dome itself will probably stay relatively static, but uh, the Israelis are already working on something they call Iron Beam, and the, the discussion is how much to replace Iron Dome with. I'm thinking that they should leave Iron Dome and share the load between the two systems. Iron Beam is actually a laser system. Um, it's in production, or not in production, it's in uh, research and development right now, uh, but they're 
schedule has it coming out of the next handful of years. Uh, I don't remember the exact schedule, um, but uh, it's it's designed right now as an initial concept of having radar, much like uh, the conventional system, missile systems do, uh, and will involve uh, two lasers simultaneously lasing a target. Now, obviously, that's the first run. The goal being to increase their their power uh, wattage that's available, and then uh, get it down to a single uh, firing system and just down to a pulse instead of having to keep on target for a few seconds. Um, but the the implications of that are profound because one of the biggest issues that any military has to deal with is logistics. And you think about, you know, Patton and he, him outrunning his fuel and his bullets for his tanks. Um, once you get into a laser system, there are no bullets. You just deal with power consumption. And that is just a huge, huge concept. And the speed is the speed of light. Yes. So while you still have to take the concept of uh, detection and tracking the incoming round, you don't have to, if you've got unlimited ammunition, you can shoot at anything that's coming your way. You don't have to, to limit things to only what's coming down right on top of you. Um, sharing defended areas with other launchers, okay, if it's going to go into their area, let them have it. But, you know, with unlimited ammo, you don't have to worry about the, you know, keeping up with, you know, how many missiles do I have on hand? You just pull the trigger again. And because it's speed of light, you know instantly whether it hit, whether or not it destroyed the incoming round. You know, have more time to fire a second shot if it didn't. More time to process the next engagement for something else. I mean, huge, huge timeline uh, benefits as well. Well, that's the kind of thing that could take out a ballistic missile, right? With, given and, long enough legs with it, yes. I mean, it's certainly got the speed to do so. Um, when you start talking about any type of incoming missile, you've got to deal with, you know, the, the weather. You know, can you fire uh, rockets and missiles in bad weather? Maybe rockets probably would get blown off uh, off target pretty quickly because they're unguided. Missiles might be a little more likely to uh, get in, but you know, bad weather with uh, heavy blowing winds, it, it makes guidance a little tougher. Um, but bad weather also makes lasers tougher. I mean, dust storms, fog, that type of thing, which calls the light to diffract, uh, reduces its range and uh, how good it is at any range. Uh, so that's one of the reasons that I think they ought to keep something like Iron Dome uh, where it can deal with some of that bad weather. Yeah. One thought that uh, occurred to me, I mean, you guys deal a lot, obviously, with the uh, the sci-fi thing, and we were talking about um, you know, how things might proliferate on the, the laser side. And you know, with things, you know, once it's proven as a feasible technology, it, it moving down into uh, tanks, infantry fighting vehicles, and maybe even infantry rifles, you know, we become less dependent upon that ammunition. But if you think about what we're talking about there, we're talking about putting it in tanks, infantry fighting vehicles, and maybe rifles. You take some of the other stuff that's out there right now with ground effect type vehicles, uh, you know, you put those two things together, ground effect vehicles and uh, tanks using heavy laser systems, it's not that far in the future as a possibility, technologically speaking. And it sounds an awful lot like what uh, your author, David Drake, with his Hammer Slammers has put together. Rather than being a century or three in the future, it may be a decade or three. Don't see why not. I mean... Will we? Who knows? Can we? Certainly. Uh, next few decades are going to be very interesting along those lines. But the we but the sorts of lasers that can do this have, I mean, the Navy has got our Navy, the U.S. Navy has got I have heated up some ships or or cut holes in them. Right? We have some very powerful lasers. Yes, uh, the, the I think it was the USS Ponce was the uh, test bed for. Uh, one of our systems, and just absolutely fascinating. Um, they have, they use it to detonate. Uh, they've got it scalable where they can uh, use it to heat something up or punch holes in it, that type of thing, but uh, using it to detonate um, warheads, uh, 
fuel systems uh, or just knock out uh, the, the the engines for boats. I mean, it's there's some if you search a YouTube, there are some absolutely great videos on it. Uh, learn a little bit and uh, enjoy the bang. That's just um, I mean, that's just science fictional. It's a it seems like a game changer for you know just strategically as far as um, warfare goes. Well, you know, if you take it to the uh, the the end result of of you know where it can go, you know, we talked about logistics just a minute ago. You really give the local forces a lot more freedom of movement, uh, a little less reliance on that uh, logistics tail that's behind them. Um, but once it becomes truly feasible and more portable, you know, it doesn't have to be mounted on a battleship. Then, you know, you can put it in a tank. Get the miniaturization enough. Possibly, you could even take it all the way down to, uh, you know, man portable rifle size st- stuff. Ultimately, I want one of those, please. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love one myself. You, know, you still have to deal with weather sized things, but you know those things are also much shorter ranged and are used, you know, tank on tank, tank on bunker, infantry on infantry. You know those type things. What and, kind of lasers is are the Israelis looking at? Do we know? I know that they're they're working on iron beam, which is the first step. Now, what's going to come after that? Uh, I don't think that uh, there's anything that's been been published or been talked about even off the books uh, that I have heard. But you know, you start talking once it's a proven concept, then the question is just how far can you spread it? You know, we we're talking iron beam and air defense. Can you scale it up to go against ballistic missiles? Sure. Well, what about going against ground targets, tank type system? Sure. Why not? It seems like ultimately lasers might be cheaper though and might be more might proliferate to the bad guys more uh or maybe not I don't know. Yeah, there's certainly a risk of that um being able to produce a a coherent beam of light that's going to hold itself together with enough uh energy to cause damage to something that's a pretty technologically uh impressive feat at this point. Um will it become more common? Sure. Will they be able to buy it off the black market or steal it? Sure. Uh, but I think the countries that are more technologically advanced are going to be well ahead of the power Still curve up. on that. Yeah. Well, what about give us some wild speculations um, about <laughs> other things that might come out of, of things like Iron Dome, missile defense. Are There are asteroids out there. Some have hit the Earth, causing vast devastation. Um, could... Iron Dome be the seed for a planetary asteroid shield? Sure, why not? I mean, it's the same basic concept as far as the math goes. Okay, you've got speed. You know, the asteroid could be moving at, uh, you know, some paltry little tumble uh, towards us, or it may be moving at, you know, a rather large fraction of the speed of light, just depending upon, you know, each piece of rock is going to be unique. Usually we tend to, to hear about fair-sized uh, speeds, uh, you know, 10, 20% speed of light, which, you know, doesn't sound like a whole lot until you start adding up and figure out what that is in miles per hour. But the math is the same. You know, you've got to, you know, something moving in towards you, and you've got to send something out to intercept it. Uh, I think that it's eminently feasible. They did something very similar with uh, that, uh, what was it, the movie Armageddon. Now, we wouldn't have to land on it and drill a hole in it. We just have to hit it with something. But like Armageddon, the whole point is not to destroy it, but just to divert it a little bit. You know, a couple of degrees measured over hundreds of thousands of miles, that's plenty to miss a little bitty planet like Earth. You are a big David Weber fan. In fact, um, you have been to HonorCon and some of the other David Weber uh, get-togethers. What do you like about the series? the Honor uh, Harrington series and his other stuff? I think the biggest draw, I mean, David's a good author, but he is a fantastic storyteller and that the centerpiece of any story is going to be the characters. Um, now, one of the things that makes his stories so good when he de- as he develops his characters, he develops his settings, and so he discusses the technology, and sometimes he's got a little discussion on how it develops uh, and how it works, and he keeps things within the realms of a... I guess he's got his rules set, and he tells you what they are for any technology that he's got going. 
but much of what he writes you can see in where we are today, how he's kind of projected ahead. Uh, if you read some of his early honor verse books uh, on Basilisk Station, Honor of the Queen, you can see some of how the uh, technology there has been put forward and then read some of his more recent books and how the technology has changed in how he writes. And you can see, you know, if you, you pull back a little bit, you can see how much we have changed in the last 20 years since he started writing Honor Harrington and how our technological technological changes have impacted what he's writing. And I, I love how his technology is is grounded, I guess, more than just completely out there. Well, I want to swing back one more time and see if I can squeeze any more out of you. I mean, your your job in D.C. was fascinating. Um, the Within the bounds of what you can say, what should, can we sleep at night? Can we sleep a little better knowing that we that um, that guys like you have uh, at least some of the situation in hand with uh, with the kind of threats we face out there? I would say yes. Uh, you can rest well. Uh, we've got uh, airmen and soldiers who man the systems uh, there in D.C. They're first-rate professionals, and they stand their watch with a lot of diligence. Um, some of the brightest and sharpest uh, folks I've ever had the pleasure to work with are there. And uh, they know their jobs. They do them well. Uh, I mentioned earlier that uh, it's an integrated system. Uh, we've got both air and ground-based stuff. We utilize communication systems, radar systems, uh, weapon systems, computer systems, and we tie everything together. And the whole goal is to prevent another 9-11 type attack from successfully hitting the, that area. Um, it's It's a very robust system, and there's a lot of thought uh, given to the different procedures and policies that are enforced there. And as I said, we got first-rate guys and gals that are manning those uh, stations. They have it in hand. Including Alan Isom. Um, and we are talking with Alan Isom, structural engineer and an air defense artillery lieutenant colonel with the 263rd Army Air and Missile Defense Command, South Carolina Army National Guard. Alan, thanks so much for being with us and talking about this stuff. Well, thanks again for inviting me. I really enjoyed it. I should mention again that the article is at Bain.com uh, right now, and it will also be available uh, in the 2015 nonfiction free ebook collection. You can get that at BainEbooks.com if um, it's not available uh, on the front page of Bain.com when you listen to this. So thanks again, Alan. Thank you, Tony. And now here is another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. This portion of Hard Magic is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Here's the setup for what's coming up. It's the 1930s in America, but it's an America that has been magically changed. In the 1860s, a handful of people from all walks of life were visited with special magical talents, and each generation more are so affected. These people are called actives. Most actives use their powers for good, but some don't. Jake Sullivan is a private eye. He's also a former soldier, an ex-con, and an active heavy the type of active that controls the force of gravity. Jake is good at it. Jake has been recruited by a mysterious secret organization of actives, the Grim Noir, who are dedicated to seeing humanity through a possible magic-based apocalypse, an apocalypse that seems to be accelerating toward a terrible finale. Here is Bronson Pinchot with this portion of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. Chapter 27 I swear before my God and these witnesses that I will stay true to the right and good, that my magic will be used to protect, not to enslave, that all my strength and wisdom must always shield the innocent. I swear to fight for liberty, though it cost my life. The society will be my blood and its knights my brothers, 
and that I will always heed the wisdom of the elders' counsel, I willingly pledge my magic, my knowledge, my resources, and my life to uphold these things. Oath of the Grimoire Society Original Date Unknown San Francisco, California The pale horse enjoyed his cigarette. It was a mild blend that soothed his nerves. He reasoned that it was more than likely his last. John Browning was watching him steadily and the forty-five had not moved from his heart. You are a hero? For whom? The Imperium? Oh, far from that, John. May I call you John? He did not wait for a response. I've been fighting the Imperium my entire life. I've sacrificed much to stop them and the others like them. I've stood with the Grimoire since I was a child. My family were of the founders. Yet you betrayed them. No, I stand by my oath to the end, perhaps more than any other, for I was willing to go further than any night before me. The room shook slightly. Ripples appeared in the pitcher of water at the bedside. The glass in the window rattled. Earthquake, Browning said. He could tell. It was done. No, that was the firing of the geotel. Curse you, Browning said, lifting the gun. Save your bullet, America, is safe, Harkness said, tapping the ash from the end of his smoke. What you just felt was the end of... Okubo, Tukagawa, and if Pershing's knights hadn't been so damn obstinate, then it would also have been the end of Japan as well, though with their leader vaporized, I imagine they won't be nearly the same threat anymore. He could see Browning was puzzled, but his finger was still on the trigger. You are not convinced? Please go on. Browning was polite in his inquisition. I argued against Pershing in the councils. He wanted the geotel destroyed. I wanted to use it against Japan immediately. The elders were afraid to take so many lives. The geotel could have wiped the entire island from the map in one shot. As usual, the elders were cowards and took a middle way. They would not use the geotel yet, but they would hold it in reserve, entrusting it to the man who'd captured it, so that if that darkest day ever came, then we would have one final option. But even as our numbers dwindled and we lost more brave knights every day, the elders were frightened. Pershing was calling for an all-out open war, but even he was not willing to take the final step and use our ultimate weapon. Pershing was a soldier. Soldiers fight against other soldiers. They do not kill an entire people. The chairman would not hesitate. Why should we? Has he been right all Along are we as weak as he says? Should we make way for the strong? Harkness asked. He'd had this same argument many times. Save your politics for the elders' council. My hand is getting tired and I intend to shoot you soon. Though the council was afraid, there was another one of the elders who had the will 
to do what needed to be done. We were tired of doing all the bleeding. It was time to end the secret war once and for all. So where is Isaiah? On his way to Europe to face the other elders, we have some explaining to do. Our plan was simple. We could not just take the pieces of the Geotel from Pershing. They were only two of us, and we'd be found and stopped. But if the chairman were to find out where the pieces were, not shooting you down becomes more difficult by the second. It felt good to talk about this, to get it off his chest. He'd dedicated years of his life to this mission. It was the culmination of his career. We could not make it seem too easy. The chairman was far too crafty for that he'd smell the trap. We had to sell it. We had to make him believe Isaiah is the finest wizard in the entire society. He studied Tesla's notes until he was sure he'd mastered the targeting geometry we just needed to make sure it would be hidden somewhere in the Imperium and the chairman would kill himself and his entire country for us when we found out that U.B.F. was building a magnificent flagship for him. We knew that we had been given the perfect opportunity. Browning scowled. You killed Francis's grandfather as well, I suppose. Yes, he knew too much. Originally, I planned on just threatening old Cornelius into carving the target onto the Tokugawa. Sure, it was Isaiah who magically put the suggestion of cursing his greatest nemesis into his mind, but the murder is entirely on his head. Pershing had wronged him. It was your good general who exposed Cornelius's son's corruption and selling of secrets to the Imperium. Cursing your friend did two things for us. It secured the favor necessary to place the target, and it removed the one Grimdoire who was most likely to thwart our plans. That's how I reasoned it was you. You were one of the few who helped us after the attack. You healed Black Jack, and you were here again when Stuyvesant died of a cursing. Tell me, was the attack on the mansion your fault too? Did you tell the Imperium we were stationed at the Talon home before that? The latest, no, three years ago, yes, he answered truthfully, though harbor no ill will toward my granddaughter. She was innocent. She only tagged along in the aftermath to try and help her volunteering to tend to Pershing only complicated things. Browning nodded. I'll not tell her of your plots. I'll tell her you died honorably. Thank you, but I'm afraid that she is gone. As well, just one more sacrifice among many. If fortune was smiling on us when she died, then the Tokugawa was sailing over Tokyo just now. I have no regrets Stopping the chairman was worth anything. The other grimoire was completely calm. Harkness knew Browning's reputation as a reasonable and level-headed man, and now he too knew the whole truth. Sure, Harkness had done many evil things, but he'd done them for the greater good. He could tell that Browning was pondering deeply on what was just said, and perhaps he too would come to see the inevitable wisdom in what Harkness had done. It did not take long for John Moses Browning to make his decision. 
Any last words, oath-breaker? You never wanted to be judged by a man who was named after two biblical figures. Harkness stabbed out his cigarette on the arm of the chair. There would be no begging. I'd do it again. I know. John Moses Browning pulled the trigger and put a single forty-five slug through the pale horse's heart. That was another segment in our complete audiobook serialization of Horror and Magic by Larry Correa, read by Bronson Pinchot. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz and a bouquet-like defensive barrage of Tamar dandelion fuzz and a couple of Saturn Vs I walked out of the Space and Rocket Center in Huntsville, Alabama with in my pocket for Alan Isom, author of Using Missile Defense Against Terrorist Attacks, Israel's Iron Dome, and the Future of Rocket Shields, available at Bain.com. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. Thank you.